Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we talk to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. I'm your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Day, New York. All right, so just tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Fern Perlstein. I am a director, cinematographer, editor, mostly of documentaries. Um, uh, that's it. And a mom. Now, I want to start, I like to start out with some of the things that, that, I, that I read. I think this is kind of amazing. So your film is The Last Laugh. We're going to get to that specifically. It's a 7.7 on IMDb. That's, that's pretty all. good. That's <laughs> I'm good. Just kidding. That's good. Okay. Facebook five five out of five. Do you know this? Uh, no. Keep going. Okay. You got a one hundred percent full ripe tomato on Rotten Tomatoes. Nice. One hundred percent full ripe tomato, and that's better than Martin Scorsese. What can I say? <laughs> pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. So as of today, that, 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 that that's really good. Um, and you're also again. Not to plug you even, you know, too much, but this is pretty amazing. You're higher than 20 feet from stardom. Do you know that one? That's a really good one. No, okay. I don't know that. Uh, Fog of War, Errol Morris's excellent documentary, and even higher than Hoop Dreams. <laughs> it, I, is this the best documentary ever? It is the best documentary ever. <laughs> All right, so let's get into that. So so tell us about The Last Laugh. How How did this thing come about? It's a documentary about what? It is a documentary about taboos and humor, but we focus it sort of through the lens of the Holocaust, which is one of the most off-limits topics. And we sort of go from there, what else can't you, not can't you make jokes of, but what is difficult to make jokes about. Right, because nothing screams humor like the Holocaust. <laughs> so now, I tell us a little bit about, this is an interesting Way you got to the material. This wasn't something like, oh, you know, I was, you know, uh, you know, I heard a, you know, a Holocaust joke. You saw something quite intellectual about this, right? The story is that in 1990, uh, I was working actually across the street for two Japanese, the New York bureau chiefs of two different Japanese newspapers. I was a documentary still photographer. They they got invited to, you know, by the Chamber of Commerce to go to Miami to take photographs, you know, to do stories on Miami and give mm. Miami a better name because it was in the midst of their, you know, bad reputation for drug trafficking and right. stuff. So he, my boss says, you go do a story on drug trafficking and go on the tour. And I brought a friend of mine, a very just good friend of mine. His name was Kent Kirschenbaum. And we had just both read Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Right. And an elderly survivor was giving us the tour. And when everybody went their separate ways, um, he and I got into a conversation with her about Mouse. Hmm. She was very upset about it. Hmm. Understandably. I mean, so, maybe, it was, so maybe maybe tell the listeners a little bit about what Mouse so, is. So Mouse was the fir- basically the very first graphic novel. Art Spiegelman was the creator. He was a child of survivors. It is the story of his father in Auschwitz, you know, intercut with his story of of, you know, trying to get along with his mm. father in the present day. And in the story, all of the Jewish people are uh, mice. The Nazis are cats. It's like, so, it's like George Orwell's Animal Farm, in a way, without the Nazi persecution. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that's what the story's about. And it's not funny, but it's a right. comic form. And so that was the conversation we had with this woman where she said, 
she her response was, there's nothing funny about the Holocaust. You can't cover it in the funny pages. And we tried to explain it was very serious. It was just mm. this form. And so we went, my friend and I went off in our separate directions. I went off to go to film school. He He's a professor. He's a tenured professor in chemistry at NYU Hmm. and went to get his Ph.D. in chemistry. So he had to go back and take a couple more college courses. And in in that process, he took an anti-Semitism class and and based on that conversation, wrote this 25-page academic paper called The Last Laugh, Humor in the Holocaust. And it was a very sort of very academic paper about collecting jokes from World War II in the camps, in the ghettos, mm. and the the psychology of, of humor. And basically, I bumped into him again in 1993, and he handed me the paper, and he said, make this into a movie. Wow. And so I knew I was going to make it into a movie, but I also knew it was a daunting thing to do, sure. and it wasn't going to be next up. By the way, fortunately, it wasn't like a doctoral thesis on you know nuclear physics. Like, hey, yeah. make a documentary yeah. about that, yeah. you know? Like, this one's a pretty good story. Exactly. Wow. But also, I knew that, well, a couple of things. I knew if I was going to make it into a film, it would have to have post-war humor, mm-hmm. which his film, yeah, his paper didn't touch at all. And I, but at the same time, I didn't want it, it, it I really struggled with it because I also didn't want it to just be the interviews mm-hmm. and the clips. So I struggled for years for that B story, wow. basically, that observational story that I knew I would find. And I and I eventually did. But, you know, it took so my husband, Robert Edwards, and I met because I was a working cinematographer. He hired me to shoot his film. And by the third day, we were dating. Wow. And a month later, we were taking that proposal and turning it into a film. So I think, you know, just even back up a little bit. So even because I just can't believe you've been working on this thing since 1990. I mean. You know. Well, thinking about it since yeah, yeah. 1990. You do 1998, stuff. we started working on mm. it. And um, and then Life is Beautiful came out, and we thought we got to step back because it was a bombshell. You know, mm. it, was, it, was, it would have made the whole conversation with anyone we interviewed, the conversation would have been about that. So we waited about a year or two till we started working on the proposal again. And we kept trying, and people were like, fascinating idea. Let me know when somebody else says yes. People were terrified of it. Now, that was 1998. It's a long time ago. I right. mean, you know, you see a lot more satire and comedy, you know, in relation to difficult topics now than you did then. Right. I mean, I think had I made it then, it would have, I, I think, you know, I would have had hate mail and mm-hmm. protesters. And it's just a totally different environment for it. Mm-hmm. So then what happened was in 2006, we went to the see The Aristocrats. Do you know that film? Of course. And I thought, and you saw the first 9-11 jokes, and I thought, people are ready. People are ready to see my film. So then I worked my ass off at that point to get money, and it still took me till 2011. Wow. All right, so we've got to unpack this. So to me, what's <laughs> first, first of all, what's very interesting is that the reaction that you got in Miami from that woman, I think would be the convention. Absolutely. Well, Still. I, I mean, how how do you even have like the guts to disrupt the Holocaust? You know, that's a that's a that's a big thing. So obviously, you know, and I want to talk a little bit about that, you know, the bravery to do it. So like how is it possible that you could look at this atrocity and just go, you know what, I, there's something here that there's another piece to this that doesn't diminish the misery 
but it actually helps to, you know, alleviate mm-hmm. some of the misery. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you like? How did you? Well, that's come a good question that? because it was basically the content of his paper, the fact that there was documentation of people who could make a joke, mm. who you know found humor, could you know giggle at something in the darkest mm. of dark moments. And that's what made it okay for me to make the film. If if that hadn't existed, if somebody said, "Let's just make a, f- a film about you know Holocaust jokes," Holocaust jokes, yeah. I would probably be more terrified. But I this was a um, a real thing. And what was interesting is when people say to me, "Well, like you said, isn't it the norm that people don't think it's okay?" I was surprised by how many survivors I found that thought it was okay mm. or that they did remember, you know, a joke here and there. Interesting. Know? Even the woman in my film, Renee Firestone, th- this didn't this this is on the cutting room floor, but she tells a story and I've heard this from at least two other survivors that when they went out on the first day to roll call after their hair had been shaved and they've been thrown in these you know, clothes that mm. didn't fit, not matching shoes, that they would look at their friends and sometimes giggle. <laughs> because, you know, like it's easy for us in retrospect to look at what happened at Auschwitz mm-hmm. and say, how could you laugh? But, you know, they were living their daily lives. Some of them had had lived through hateful acts their entire life. Right. This was another day. And as Renee will say, you know, humor is a it's a natural instinct. And if something's funny, you laugh. Even if you're in the camps, yeah. you know. But you you interviewed one of my heroes, Mel Brooks. So why don't you tell us about oh. that? Well, that's that's another kind of funny story. Well, the best part of that interview was at the very end, he took uh, my face in his hands and he kissed me on the cheek three times and he said, "Good job, Pearlstein." And I, I was wow. like, "I'm retiring after this." Yeah. <laughs> so that was amazing. He was incredible. Um. I'm not sure I should give this away in case he ever would hear this, but so... He's a big listener. He's a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> big fan. He's chronically sending email to the agency. Great, oh, we great. love that Apple thing you did. So uh, so I, you know, basically with every interview, I had a standard set of questions. Mm. And then when somebody said yes, I would do massive research on them specifically. And as you can imagine... There's no one who has covered this topic more. Right. So I had a huge, you know, you know, I don't know, at least eight pages of questions. Wow. And, you know, I, I was shooting in film, which they're 10-minute rolls. And he said, Zess, I'll give you three rolls. I mean, he was impressed that we were shooting in film, which was nice. But, you know, three rolls, which was about, which was average. That mm. was what people were giving us. Mm. You know, it's a half hour right. plus the time to change the magazines. And uh, the way it would be set up is I would I would help set up the shot and then and my partner would do the actual, inter- you know, like shoot the actual interviews while I sat and did them. Right, right. And Bob would be behind us under the lights, you know, in the dark and sometimes say a question and they'd answer to me. So he'd sometimes be a voice from beyond. So I there were so many incredible anecdotes that I found out about that mm. weren't the obvious questions like you know, the producers, this and that. And I was going for all those anecdotes and I would ask them all. And 
you know, I would get these nudges from Bob, like, you got to get, you know, get to the producers, get to the producers, right, get right. to, you know. And by the way, because the producers has springtime for Hitler. It's the, you know, kind of most conspicuous. Absolutely. Make fun of the Nazis since Chaplin. Absolutely. So and there was and there and he has a number of things like that. So, you know, the first role finishes and he and, he, you know, while they're changing, he comes up to me. He's like, what are you doing? What, 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 what are you what are you thinking? And I'm like, I got it. I got it. And so he goes back and. I do a whole other role of, and don't even get to the questions. And he's now he's getting pissed off at me. He's like, what are you doing? You're blowing it. You're blowing it with Mel Brooks. We're sitting here with him. I'm like, trust me, I've got it. And uh, a half of the next role goes by, and I still haven't asked him. And, and I can feel like Bob's sweating. He's just dying behind me. And then I ask him, mm. and he gave me five rolls of film. Because I knew, I mean, this is his thing. He was going to tell me that. And it was my only way to get these incredible stories that I never would have gotten because I would have been cut off. And uh, he gave it to me happily. Like he wasn't, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, so it was, a, it was a gamble, you know. All right. So how much of that is training? How much of that is intuition? How much of that is your process? I mean, how did it's you know to do that? It's not necessarily my process. I, I, I just had that intuition with him. You know, I just, I, I, I you know, I, I how's he not going to talk about the producers? You know, and I, and not only that, but I think he was impressed because the things I was asking mm. him in those two and a half roles before that were really obscure stories that proved that I really did my homework. Mm. Interesting. So, like, I found footage that nobody knew about and I, you know, I brought it up to him. And so he was excited to talk about these things. So it wasn't, you know. And then so was part of your process uh, just really deep knowledge on people like for Sarah Silverman or Gilbert Gottfried? Like, did you have to look at, you know, hours of film on them or, you know? Yes. But, you know, one thing is that Bob is a total comedy nerd and somebody that remembers everything. So from day one, he had a list of every comedian who had done a bit or a Holocaust joke. or So we mm. had, he was my encyclopedia. And just to be clear, so Bob was, what was his role on the film? So he was a producer on the film mm -hmm. and, and helped me with all the writing. Okay. You know? And then, all right, well, I think that's another interesting topic. Sorry to be all over the that's place, okay. but you're going to interesting places. Okay. When you do a documentary, do you have to storyboard it out? Uh, did, uh, by the way, did you take like Robert McKee's story structure you know I, I did not. That's or a very Sid narrative Field. thing. That's a very narrative okay. thing. And my and Bob is a he is a screenwriter. Right. But he doesn't do that either. But by, by the way, if I yeah. want to people like if they want to think that I'm like a really, you know, interesting fancy writer, uh -huh. I use the word narrative versus yeah. story. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, how is that? Let's let's talk about the narrative. It's just it's it's a little yeah, gift yeah. for you, you know. Thank You're you. a legitimate storyteller. You don't need that kind of stuff. But some of these kids <laughs> at home, they don't they don't know what to do at a party. God. But meantime, so but when you do a documentary, because I saw the guy who did Dogtown and Z Boys, uh, yes. Stacy, um, I'm spacing on his last name, but um, he said that he kind of specked it out a bit. Like, yeah, it, you have to. You, so there's I mean, some narrative you, structure. You, the, the in documentary, it's 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 created in the edit room often. Mm. You know, I mean, if you read my early early proposals. The, the story is very in line with what it's very in line with my vision. Hmm. However, 
you know, especially this. This was like writing a paper, this film. Hmm. You know, and the good news was somebody already wrote the paper. Exactly. <laughs> Although the, his paper was so different because it was so based in this World War II stuff, which was really hard. This hmm. is changing the subject, but really hard for me to include because the jokes didn't translate so right. well to a modern audience. Mm, so that was disappointing. I, that was, that's the one huh. regret I have, that I couldn't put more of that in the film. But, um, but, but, but going into it, you didn't have like some sort of outline like... Like you said, you brought in uh, what, Ruth Firestone. What's the name of it? Renee. Renee Firestone. Like, I mean, did you know any kind of narrative on this thing? No. Like, th- this was this was something I had to. I had to write, not so, write, but kind of. You know, it was so hard because, well, first of all, I mean, if you're going to talk story structure, mm. from the first assembly, my acts, my first two acts were pretty much locked mm-hmm. the third act could have been anything like how do you mm. you know like this was a this was a project i didn't want to tell people what to think but that's really hard to do right. you know and i still had to say something important and deep without telling them what to think and so it was real it, it, the, the finding that third act was nearly impossible that that was the big struggle and what was interesting is well this was the best part so most films you especially with documentaries let's say it's you know 30 days of shooting you do it all then you hire an editor and they sit and they edit Mm -hmm. it for however many months and then you're done because I was editing it myself and not paying myself I would raise a chunk of money do like one you know, set of interviews, which could have been five days or more or less. And then I would just edit till I got the next batch of money. So hmm. I... Like kind of making in real time. Yeah. Hmm. So I had like the, 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 the arc of the story and every six months I'd shoot again and I could keep making it deeper. Hmm. And I could see, okay, a lot of people talk about this, but nobody's talking about this, you know, or... I, I'm having, you know, I could keep doing it. So that that kept making the story deeper and deeper. But also what was happening is with every new shoot or batch of shoots, there'd be a new event that had taken place that was on the comedians' minds. I did this batch of interviews in Los Angeles and with Larry Charles and the Boston bombing had just happened. Oh, wow. And that was particularly interesting to talk to him about because they, Larry Charles directed Borat. Wow. So he He's an old Seinfeld guy too, right? He's a Seinfeld yeah. guy, yeah. And he's he's incredible and so smart. And they called the the Boston bomber the Borat bomber because he had written a lot on his Facebook page about how he that was his favorite movie and you know, so there was a lot of funny things and one of the that my one of the funny outtakes that I have from that is he tells a story that, you know, it had just happened the day before that Larry David, his very mm-hmm. good friend, as you can imagine, Larry David, had just published an op-ed, I think, in the New York Times about um, – because if you recall, when when after the they caught the one brother, the other brother was in a hoodie and then the mm-hmm. mother came out and she said, my, my son, you know – 
he doesn't wear a hoodie. That can't be him. So Larry David does this whole op-ed about how, you know, it's a conversation between him and his, like his mother. Right. My Larry, mm. he doesn't even like hoodies. He looks terrible in a hoodie. And it's this whole back and forth as if he were. So I, we would get these current events of taboos each time, which was so fascinating. And then, of course, the the attacks on Charlie Hebdo happened and that became wow. a thing. And, and so... I mean, it was really important for me to to bring in freedom of speech, hmm. you know, and so that that really helped us. So I think what's very interesting in what you just said was that, you know, here we're talking about uh, humor in the Holocaust and it's whatever, you know, 50 years more or more, you know, beyond the Holocaust, 60 years. And then here's this thing that happens in Boston and within, I don't know, maybe two weeks, Larry David wrote that thing. Oh, yeah. So maybe the compression of time you know, is a factor now. And is that like a social media thing? What do you think? I mean, I don't know. You know, we were just talking about this with somebody else yesterday, but I think that humor and satire are used more readily now Mm. with difficult topics. Mm. And so there's that. But I also think that it used to be, and this is pre-internet. I was just talking about this at a, 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 a podcast we were doing yesterday with Judy Gold about the too soon thing. You know yep. how, you know some, you know the Challenger exploded and and people were making you know jokes, and and where was that coming from? That was pre-internet. Right. How did those jokes happen so quickly and get around? So when you did the film, who of all the comedians you met? Let's put Mel Brooks aside because you told us great things about Mel Brooks. Who was the most surprising to you? And it could be good surprise or bad mm-hmm. surprise. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, let me just one thing about Mel Brooks is that he's the biggest surprise in the film because everybody knows him as so daring. Mm. But he has this line of that he will not cross of making Holocaust jokes versus Nazi jokes. Oh. That's the big surprise in making the film, that there's a distinction. Wow. Here's a funny story. So our European premiere was in Munich, of all places. Really? You couldn't find somewhere that was more <laughs> the heart, like Berlin? You just couldn't? Munich, okay. Because Munich Nazi was, central. Yeah, Munich yeah. was pretty much Nazi central. Yeah. So um, uh, it was really interesting because you could feel the tension mm. in the room. They would not laugh at the Holocaust jokes. They, you felt it. It was this, it was it was surreal how much you felt it in the room. However, they did laugh if Renee or one of the other survivors made a joke because I guess they felt like well, permission. Yeah, the other jokes that they did laugh at were the Jew, the the cheap Jew jokes. Oh, oh, that's okay. <laughs> that was okay. They were completely like they felt like that was okay, and they and in my mind that was worse. Yeah, because the so. film is about. Holocaust jokes. It's not about, you know, making fun of the Jewish stereotype. So I that made me really uncomfortable. But what I would say is if we're talking about brave, I think one of the bravest Mm. things I did was talk about it at the Q&A. Oh, I brought it up and had that go over. I think it went. I think it went. Well, you know, no, it, it was a. Nobody oh, this, this, uh, the director von Pursting, yeah. Well, you know, anyone That's my German, from Munich way. that was going to see the film, I suspect is, you know, we're not talking neo-Nazis or Nazis, you know, they're not, that's not who that they're audience They're Nazi adjacent, was. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, and how was uh, Gilbert Gottfried? And- Gilbert was so fun to interview. I, I didn't know, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if he was going to 
you know, be in the Gilbert. Right, his shtick. Shtick. I didn't know, like, because it was an interview. So he comes in, and I can't tell, I can't tell, and I'm, I'm worried I'm not going to be able to draw him out. And he sits down, and the first thing. So let me let me step back to say, with every interview, because I wanted to make, you know, it's such a serious yeah. subject. I wanted them to feel it was okay to mm-hmm. be funny, you know. So I I did this thing where with every interview I started with, do you have a Holocaust joke? Which oh, was a great way to break great. the ice. So I, I say to him, and at this point I'm really worried I'm not drawing him out. I'm not going to be able to. And I, I said, do you have a Holocaust joke? And he goes, there was a Holocaust? Nobody told me. And, he, and in his voice, really <laughs> loud. And I was like, oh, I, totally scared. And then it got to the point where he was just on fire. And all I would have to do is say, AIDS. And I would like... You know, because he was just in my face, you know, like with every answer. And I, I did not know what was going to come out of his mouth. But at the same time, he is an absolute, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, an absolute genius mm. about this kind of comedy. He had, talk about encyclopedic knowledge. Mm. He knew about every reference. A lot of the people didn't know every reference, mm. you know. He knew everything. So he was fantastic. I even said to him the night of the premiere with his wife, who I'm friends with, that... Um, My best friend, Gilbert Gottfried's wife. I, I said, I, I know this sounds really bad, but I I was surprised what a genius you were about this. I mean, it's just he's so... It's just he was so brilliant on this topic. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about you now. Okay. So... Uh, did you always want to be a like a storyteller? I mean, you know, you're just like a nice kid from Philly. How did this all happen? Jen dropped me off at the LSAT, and I left my form in her car, and it was pre-cell phone, so I couldn't even track her down. It was a sign. So, yeah, it was a sign. So uh, I I got my LSATs back Christmas break of uh, our senior year, and I had a stack, you know, about two feet tall of different law school applications. And I got back at one in the morning and I saw the uh, scores and I said, okay, this is the sign. It's over. And I called my parents and they were, of course, devastated. devastated. And, you know, I, I, I lived in a house with five women and, and at eight in the morning the next day, my parents called, which, you know, is a terrible thing to do. And they, they called and they said, you, we thought about it and you're just going to take them again. And I said, I'm I'm going to be a photographer. I don't even know where it w- I don't know where it mm. came from. I don't know. I hadn't really given it much thought. It was as if it came to me. That's wow. all I can say. Wow. It felt like a stretch to my parents, who it took them until I got into Stanford that they sort of were oh, like, Michigan oh. wasn't good enough. It had to be Stanford. But I mean, but, with, by the way, with, go with blue. The... I just want to get a go blue in there because we mentioned Michigan. So... I mean, just that that was something that, you know, uh, because it was in the in this career path that they were really freaked out about Hmm. that I got into, you know, film school at Stanford. I didn't get into the math department. I got into film school, but still. We we know what happened to your business skills. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but you used the the photographs that you had taken it, when you're at Ann Arbor, right? Well, that's what I got interested in, right? Taking pictures of those kids, and that's what I continued. And I moved to D.C. for a year, and then while I was there, I was taking you know photography classes mm. at an art school. But it, that's not what I wanted to do. Like I really wanted documentary, mm. and it was really hard to find that. And so I was taking art classes, and I felt 
like I didn't belong. Right. And I had seen an ad for this week-long, you know, intensive program for a week in New York that fall that was, like, given through Parsons and the New School. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be run by all these, like, famous photojournalists and stuff. And I did it. And I didn't know what I was doing. Right. I barely knew how to use a camera. And at the end, I won, like, this Nikon camera for the best photo of the whole group. And some of these people were, you know, fourth-year photo students. So, you know, it was like a big deal. So it was like, okay, this is what it's meant to be. And then I moved to New York the next year because the International Center of Photography had an immersion documentary program like Hmm. that one week-long program that was all these famous, you know, photographers and documentary photographers. Hmm. And and that's when, that's what I did. And then, so then you you went, did you have the job at the Japanese newspaper? Yes. So what happened was, you know, just my luck, I become a documentary photographer right as Life magazine is folding and all these. I mean, this was this was the end of the pre-digital era. I mean, we had one really avant-garde teacher who came in and he said, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to take your photo that's horizontal and they're going to, through some kind of digital process, make it vertical and it's going to be the cover of a photo and they're going to change the look of your photo. And we're like, never, not in our lifetime. I mean, we were just upset that they were putting the palm trees here instead of there, you know, to make it be the cover photo. We're like, we'd rather not have the cover photo. You know, it was, that's how out of it we were. So all these magazines, all these ways of making documentary, because, you know, now you can do photo essays on the internet. But, you you know, like when those magazines were closing, it was impossible. So I was making a living doing old-fashioned paste up, you know, with the, with the box cutter and the yeah, and the rubber exacto cement. knife and yeah. yeah, and I got what my friend Kent, the one who wrote the paper, used to call the best entry-level position in New York City. It was doing the paste up for the classifieds for the Village Voice. Wow. On a Monday night and the paper came out on Wednesday. So I got this amazing apartment and I got and I saw this ad for these two Japanese newspapers looking for an assistant. <laughs> And really, all they were looking for is because they had these, you know, their deadlines were at midnight because of the time change. And they just needed somebody to answer their phones and do very basic stuff. So I go for the interview on Tuesday. Now, the, the, the ad hasn't come out yet. And they speak no English. They The only thing they knew Oh, wait. Were, so, so you saw that the ad was going to be released. Ad. I call you know, first thing Tuesday information. morning. Oh, yeah. look at you. So what I a call, hustler. I call Tuesday morning. They let, they bring me into their office. It's right across the street from here. And uh, they say, they know, like, they know like five words in English, which was photojournalist, mm. village voice. So. Uh, and you're hired. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> They were like, ah, oh, you're clever like a journalist. You you know, you figured it out. They loved that. And then the one boss had just, you know, their three-year rotations, and he was just there on this first six months. And he decided he was going to take me in under his wing, teach me everything about Japanese culture, and get me taking photographs. So I've had dozens and dozens of photos published in Japan, and I've never had one published so in the States. So you're big in Japan. I'm big in Japan. So it was great, though. And... um. He, you know, so it went from a job that was really meant to be nothing. And the very first, so I started the next day, and my first task was to answer the phone 500 times to say that the job's been taken. (laughs) Hilarious. So then you must have gotten the bug at some point because you were hired as a cinematographer. So, So what happened was, 
you know, after working there for a year and a half and realizing I have to find other ways to make a living, I read about this documentary film program at Stanford that was structured just like ICP, mm. which at which the ICP experience was one of my best experiences. Mm. So I applied, I got in, and because and and this was a really interesting program. Again, it's pre-internet, pre-digital cameras, and their whole thing was it was very small, intimate program. They didn't want people with film backgrounds. They wanted, oh, you're a science person, you're going to make science documentaries. Mm. They wanted people with interesting backgrounds who would learn how to make films. And it was easy to find that because it was before anybody knew how to use a digital camera. Mm. So, but, so they were even wary of me because I had, I had knew how to. Because you were big in Japan. Uh, well, yes, and I had a camera, you know, but it wasn't a moving camera. <laughs> but um, because I had that, a trained eye and that background, friends were all asking me to shoot their films, and that's how it started. I, I didn't even intend that to happen. In fact, when I was pitching my thesis film the very first time, I had this idea. Like my, my original, uh, I've never really said this to anyone, but I wanted to do it about uh, bras and, and, and breasts and like this whole history of like it through advertising mm. and all these things, and like a compilation film. And the head of the program it, it hits himself in the head, and he's like, unbelievable. The only person we have with a photography background isn't going to shoot their own film. And it was that moment I thought, oh, I guess I'm supposed to be shooting my own film. And that's why I dropped that project, and I then started shooting everybody's film. Um, all right, so the last laugh, it's it's playing where now? It's, it's coming out again, right? So it's opening on March 3rd at Lincoln Plaza, and... We're going to be there the whole first 10 days doing Q&As and special events, and everybody should go. But, but I think what you suggest is really powerful, which is the – it's going to sound very intellectual, but it's the precision of the humor. So the difference that you talked about between – no, it's not about Holocaust jokes. It's about Nazi it's 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 joking at the expense of the Nazis. Yeah, That's okay. At the perpetrators, yeah. So, it's, so maybe there is something about you know the, the precision of – of mm -hmm. the comedy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. So one question we like to ask people is, uh, you know, a lot of the, the people at the agency, you know, people who listen to the show, they've got ideas. They look at you and they're like, wow, if one day I could be like Fern Perlstein making these cool <laughs> documentaries. Uh, it's Thursday. What should they do Monday? If they have an idea, if you could talk to yourself, whatever it was, 20 odd years ago, I'll give us a little, I'll give us a little room. What would you do Monday? Well, I have this thing where I can't give up on something. You know, I cannot. And, and, and it's just about persevering. And you just, if, if you know it's the right thing, if you know it's what you should be doing, you just keep finding ways till you do it. And that's that's the only advice because it's not always easy to do it and it's not always... There's not always a direct path. But, you know, this isn't just something in my career. It's, you know, it took me eight years to have my daughter, but I finally did because I did not give up. You know, I believe that there was something, you know, some something missing and I mm. got to the bottom of it. I was like my own detective. And it's the same with this. You know, you just have to you, – you know when it's the right thing. You know when, you know, there's something you let go of and, you know, like, oh, okay – that, that that's okay that you let go of it. But there are other things 
that you just know you shouldn't. And I just think it's about perseverance. And how do you deal with uh, with the inevitable obstacles of people saying, oh, you know, you can't make a, a film about this kind of taboo. I mean, how do you keep going? And again, with an eye towards okay, well, inspiring people. It's interesting because, you know, when we going back to that story of when all of a sudden I knew I was going to be a photographer, you know, I wasn't, especially, you know, you know, with my parents, I wasn't very opinionated and very, you know, comfortable saying this is what I want. But that somehow came out of somewhere. And it's something that I've always had confidence in. It's like this one area that I've, I trust in myself. I don't know why. And so I, 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 you know, I feel very lucky that it came to me and it's, I never wavered on it. Like I, you know, I, I'm, I have a lot of, um, you know, I'm very proud of both of my movies. I, but I also have, the, you know, like the problem of that I don't stop until it's done. You know what I mean? I, I, I you know, that, that, that can also like chip away at your soul a little. But, you know, I, I just I show it to the very last person like, OK, working now, you know, and I will. And that, well, so that's other advice is that I, I am not afraid to ask every single person I have respect for, you know, what they think and is it working and what, you know, and I just keep whittling down the like, well, this isn't working that until until those go away. And then there are things that, that people will say that aren't working, but I, in my, that's what I'm going for. So I don't, I know how to like, you know, separate those out. Amazing. Well, Fern, you're awesome. Thank, thank you so you. much for doing this. And, this uh, was fun. It's really good. So thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashyatny.tumblr.com 